so many people have been touched um, by the, the fruit of her witness. And you know, so there are and um, there are there are in some cases tangible results, as in there are people who she advocated for and they were released from prison or she was part of the Regis movement um, that eventually won Japanese American reparations and an official apology, right? In some cases, there are tangible results. In other cases, the, the tangible results are um, maybe not the stuff that, uh, that always makes it in the history books. It's the letters that she would stay up writing to people right, to comfort them in prison. And she would send five, 10, $20 to them just so they could buy something at the, the commissary, right? Just to um, ease some of their suffering, right? It's, or she would visit people, right? Who might be serving lifelong sentences. So this is an incredible witness. Hello and welcome to Can I Get a Witness, the podcast. This podcast is an audio companion to the book, Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice. I'm Shay Tuttle. In each episode of this podcast, I'll talk with one of our authors about the person they profiled for the book and about their writing process. Today, I'm speaking with Grace Y. Gao. Grace Y. Gao is professor of ethics and co-director of the Center for Sexuality, Gender, and Religion at Claremont School of Theology. She is the author of Grounding Human Rights in a Pluralist World, published by Georgetown University Press in 2011, and the co-editor of Asian American Christian Ethics, Voices, Methods, Issues, published by Baylor University Press in 2015, and Encountering the Sacred, Feminist Reflections on Women's Lives, published by T.N.T. Clark in 2018. For our book, Grace wrote on Yuri Kochiyama. Well, Grace, thank you for talking with me about Yuri. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. So thanks yeah, for doing it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah, great. So for folks who may not be familiar with Yuri Kochiyama and her story, can you start off by just giving us a sort of summary of her significance, what she's known for and why she's in this book? Okay, so she is known for her civil rights and revolutionary work. So she has been celebrated by the White House for her advocacy for racial ethnic communities and her support for marginalized peoples around the world. Um, she was someone who was incarcerated with other Japanese Americans uh, during World War II and became an activist for redress efforts. Uh, she's been involved in political prisoner movements so basically, she's known as an activist and perhaps the best known activist of Asian American heritage. That, that's how people might uh, know her. The other thing I should add is that some people don't know that part, but they know friend of Malcolm X hmm. uh, because they've, they've had obituaries about her and him. And she was famously at um, the she, she was cradling his head 
as he lay dying um, after having been assassinated. So some people, you know, know her visually as that Asian woman with those iconic glasses cradling his head. Mm. So in just a minute, I'd like to ask you to read an excerpt from your chapter um, about this really defining experience of Yuri's life. Um, But before we do that, could you talk a little bit about what her life looked like before the experience you're going to read about? Okay. So she is second generation Japanese American, meaning she was not an immigrant. Her parents were. And she describes her life prior to World War II as being, you know, red, white, and blue existence and a so-called banana. Banana means you're yellow on the outside and you're white on the inside. So she, she will describe herself as, you know, an apple pie, baseball, you know, like just one of those people who had a very romantic, um, but later on she would say colonized mentality. Um, popular in school, et cetera, et cetera. And the experience of World War II and the mass incarceration really opened her eyes to um, unjust suffering, not just of her people, but of others. Great. Okay, so if you could read that excerpt, that would be, that would get us into her story. That would be great. Thanks. Great. Okay. Within hours of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor, Three agents from the FBI appeared at Yuri's home where she lived with her twin brother, Peter, older brother, Art, and Japanese immigrant parents in a white neighborhood in a coastal town near Los Angeles. The FBI said they were looking for her father, Seiichi, a fisherman and small business owner who sold fish and supplies to American and Japanese ships that sailed between Japan and the West Coast. Yuri told the agents he was sleeping as he had just returned from the hospital a day earlier after having undergone an ulcer operation. The FBI nevertheless brusquely rifled through the family's belongings, demanded that Seiji get dressed in a bathrobe and slippers, and quickly whisked him away to an undisclosed location without even giving her a chance to say goodbye. What the Nakaharas didn't know was that Seiji was one of more than 700 Japanese-American fishermen business leaders, farmers, produce distributors, Shinto and Buddhist priests, Japanese language school teachers, and consular officials who were being detained on fears of possible espionage, all within 24 hours of the attack. Though the specific reasons for Seiji's arrest were not then disclosed, a lawyer friend found out several days later that he had been taken to a federal penitentiary on neighboring Terminal Island. When Yuri's mother, Suyako, saw his health decline over a short period of time during his visit, uh, he was diabetic, had respiratory problems, and was still recovering from surgery. She sent desperate telegrams to anyone who might possibly be in a position to intervene, pleading with them to attend to his urgent medical needs before turning to the matter of his arrest. Perhaps due to her persistent efforts, she was eventually transferred to a hospital several weeks later, though so he was placed in a room full of recovering U.S. merchant marines with a sheet around his bed and a sign that read, Prisoner of War. Yuri and her brother Peter were finally permitted to visit their father on January 13, 1942, 
after he had been moved to a private room for his safety. Seiji seemed to them very weak, emaciated, and disoriented. He cowered when he saw Peter, who, as a new enlistee, had come proudly dressed in his army uniform and said in Japanese, You are not my son. You came to interrogate me. Seiji recognized Yuri, but worriedly asked her, Who beat you up? even though there was nothing about her to suggest a recent assault. The family saw him again in an even worse state a week later when he arrived home from the hospital in an ambulance. Yuri recalled he couldn't talk. He made only guttural sounds, and we didn't know if he could hear. We put our hands over his eyes to see if he could see. There was no way even to know if he could see. All he did was to make guttural sounds until he passed. By the next morning, at age 54, he's dead. Thank you. It's devastating, <laughs> just to, just to sort yeah. of hear that story. So you write that it was a couple of months later when Yuri herself was also imprisoned. Um, That's right. Can you talk a little bit about her experience of incarceration? Um, it, it really comes through in your chapter that, of course, it's terrible because it's incarceration and that there are some sort of surprises in that experience for her. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure, yeah. So in uh, the excerpt I just read, I mentioned that she lived in a a white working class town. And because she was this red, white, and blue American, um, she didn't actually hang out with a lot of Japanese Americans. But of course, the experience of incarceration puts her with only people of her kind. So um, what she writes about in her own journals and diaries is that absolutely she saw the worst. She saw people go mentally insane. You know, she saw her brother's asthma being aggravated because, you know, their their detention sites were really converted horse stalls and, you know, really bare bones type of living situation. So she. She saw the worst, but she felt like she also saw the best. She saw women coming together to um, create uh, bathroom privacy curtains, right? Or, uh, you know, partitions, right? So families could have a little bit more privacy. She saw people um, try to beautify their ugly, barren places by planting gardens, Um so she saw the best and the worst, and she said she fell in love with her people in the camp. And as I write later on in the chapter, I explain how she really started to organize in the camp. She initiated this letter writing campaign um, to the soldiers serving outside of the camp. And that really gave her the skills um, to organize and mobilize people to a common cause mm. after she emerged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's, I guess it's, um, it's hopeful, even though it's all such a terrible situation to see how some of those things were so formative for her and for who she went on to be. Uh, there's, yeah, there's something really yes. neat about that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So you mentioned that her father's arrest and his death, and then even her own incarceration didn't, sort of all by themselves make her into the activist that she would become? You say she had to be conscientized. What do you mean by that? Okay, so she she got this glimmer 
of suffering, right, and, and unjust suffering in the camps, right, because it was one of those things where they were just told there's a presidential executive order saying if you're a Japanese heritage person, even if you're a native-born citizen, you have to be contained, mm. right? So clearly she had this inkling that something's not right. But the vast, you know, if, if you read accounts of um, how the Japanese-American community uh, transitioned post-camp, there was just this, uh, there were large-scale feelings of silence and shame, mm. right? That it's, it's best not to talk about the expanse or let's just try to put it behind. So I'm sure that's a factor of that. Mm-hmm. And then um, her conscience and patization also happened with her um, living in parts of the South mm-hmm. and and seeing how African-Americans were uh, poorly treated, right? And then later on, she moves to New York mm-hmm. and she is um, now living in uh, government subsidized apartments with a mostly black and Puerto Rican um, neighbor base, right? And mm-hmm. so she is living with them, experiencing life with them, and hearing more and more about their struggles. And so that all of these factors play into her sense that um, she had been seeing America, right, mm-hmm. with these rose-colored glasses. Yeah. Yeah, it just, it makes me wonder about how, you know, those early experiences may have opened her eyes as she moved on through the rest of her life to some of that suffering. You know, it it makes me wonder without that, how, I'm sure she still would have been affected by those other communities, but how much did that change the way she received it? I don't know. I I guess there's not a way to know that, but it's interesting. Sure, right. So she, it, it's clear that she's always been a people person, mm-hmm. right? But because she directly experiences imprisonment, right? And um, the, the abuse of power, right, by governmental agencies, mm-hmm. you can see how her own direct victimhood transferred into her compassion and concern for other people. Right. Yeah. And of course, this is, you know, because this is a volume on radical Christians. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about in the chapter how this is also part of her teaching. Right. That she was this faithful Presbyterian churchgoer, you know, teaching Sunday school. And she was always taught to be of service to people in need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's perfect, because that's my next question. You write that that. Yuri is often remembered for her, you know, her long career as an activist um, and for her her cross racial solidarity work, which I think is really fascinating. But I think in your chapter, you're, you're kind of saying you want to point out a couple of things that often get left out. And the first one that you mentioned is the role of religion in her life. So could you talk a little yeah. bit more about um, sort of how that how that functioned for her, why that mattered to her and, and why you think that's important? in order to be able to understand her activism to why an understanding of her faith is important for understanding her activism. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, one of the sources I draw upon is her biographer, Diane Fugino. Mm -hmm. Um, she's written this book called heartbeat of struggle. 
and she ultimately offers a picture of Yuri's Christianity as a humanitarian one, right? That it was, um, and I think I think that's a fair characterization, mm-hmm. meaning Yuri's Christianity was not of the make converts or teach Christian doctrine variety, mm-hmm. right? She 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 never had that view, even when she was um, trying to boost morale in the camp and leading. Sunday school. So, for instance, that letter writing campaign started by her leading junior, her junior high Sunday school girls, right, mm. into an activity. So, so that's point one that the the faith that she inherited and was raised in was always um, mission oriented. But again, not in that. Uh, evangelical confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior kind of way, mm-hmm. right? And so insofar as that she always had this um, gospel, you know, people would call it sacramental view of God or so, mm-hmm. then it's incorrect to think, as some people have said, that she lessened her Christian um, commitment the further along she grew in her political um, activism. Mm-hmm. So that's a common story, right? That that Yuri was a faithful, church-attending, Sunday school-teaching person, and then she became radicalized, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then her religious commitments tapered off. That's a very common view, and I do understand how and why people hold it. Um, but I say... Um, in my chapter, first of all, she never lost her commitment to the institutional church. Mm-hmm. So in fact, after her husband retired, she took several jobs, first at a Presbyterian church and then at a United Methodist Church doing in, in, overseas relief work, right? So that's that thing. And then secondly, because her Christianity was always missions oriented and she was serving people Throughout her life, I think she's she's been a Christian through and through. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the really interesting wrinkle. There was a period of time in the 1970s where she was a practicing Sunni Muslim. Mm. She visited an imam in prison. She got to know him through her, you know, solidarity work with various black national groups. Mm-hmm. And but, but the really interesting thing is, so she, you know, she, she did the prayers, she covered her hair, she took instruction from Ms. Imam, but she also kept it hidden from her family members, hmm. right? So it's, it's, so the historians will say it's about a four or five year period. And there's not, there's not clean records about how and when she transitioned out of it. Mm-hmm. We just know it was about a four or five year period. So um, one might say, well, can you be both Christian and Muslim at the same time? I mean, that's a question for people who are interested in multiple religious mm-hmm. belonging, right? Yeah. Um, but post that period in the 70s, it's in the 1980s, right, where she's going back to, well, the institutional church, right, Presbyterian and then Methodist, mm-hmm. right, to work in various capacities. 
So no doubt she has a complicated history, mm-hmm. right? Um, but but I argue, yes, she's a Christian through and through, and it's her Christianity that teaches her, right, to be of service to anyone in need. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so then the the sort of the other thing that you are making a point of saying in your chapter that you say maybe hasn't been identified in the in the other biographical narratives about her is that this this issue that she was most passionate about was unjust imprisonment, um, which makes all the sense right. in the world given her experiences in young adulthood. Um, can you share an example or two or a story or two of of the work that she did around the issue of unjust imprisonment? Yeah, sure. So, um, I, in the, in, in my chapter, I discuss three, right? But I can, the, the most famous one is probably Mumia Abu Jamal. Mm. Um, he is someone that the press has labeled, you know, the most famous person, you know, who used to be on death row. And what's interesting about Yuri is that her support for him predated his celebrity status. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and she was responsible for get. she and another person were um, helpful in getting Asian Americans to rally behind his cause. Um, and even in her old age, you know, people talk about her always wearing her Save Mumia T-shirt mm-hmm. and her walker, you know, with like 10 stickers, you know, Save Mumia. Yeah. She would write <laughs> underneath. In, in you know, in the, she would sign her Christmas cards, you know, love Yuri, P.S. Save Mumia. Mm. And what's really neat about um, the story is that she she had a personal relationship with him. She came to see him as a complex human being, you know, as a father, as a, 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 a thought leader, uh, as someone who enjoyed um, the work of a, a, a playwright that she also enjoyed as someone who learned um, how to, how to, I think, read, I'm not sure about speak, um, a certain style or um, script of Japanese, Mm. you know, so it's really, really fascinating. Um, And when, when she passes, he gives a very, very loving tribute to her in his uh, prison radio broadcast. He talks about an ancestor has passed. Mm. So he very much claimed her as one of the tribe as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So as I read through all of these chapters and have these conversations with the writers of the chapters, I often find myself asking some version of the question, you know, what does this um, story or this trait of this person have to do with being a witness? You know, this sort of overarching question in the book of can I get a witness and kind of what that means. So I'm thinking about Yuri and about this sort of, um, she has these experiences of trauma early in her adult life and how, as we were talking about over time, they become a part of her work and her, her witness. It's sort of, you know, trauma gets transformed into vocation in some kind of way. And so I'm wondering Uh what you think about that connection and, and what kind of, um, I don't know what, what is, what is the connection between trauma and then um, kind of ministry or vocation have to do with being a witness? How does that, how do you think about Mm, that having spent so much time with Yuri's story? Yeah, it's, it's, 
you know, it, it, it's a good question. I, I think no one would have begrudged her or any other Japanese American, you know, if they, so she sees the, the untimely death of her father, mm-hmm. right? And she, she herself is incarcerated and, and no one would begrudge the community, I think, if they emerged from the camps and then just simply wanted to recover mm-hmm. their previous life to the best they could yeah. and tend to family and children. So Yuri had six, mm-hmm. right? So one can imagine you could just, you know, try to put that behind you. But that's not the path she took. And I think I don't know enough about trauma mm-hmm. to know why it just breaks some people and undoes them. Yeah. You know? Or for others, it is the, um, as you said, it's the seed or the kernel that blossoms into this, uh, an incredible ministry or, or sense of vocation. So mm-hmm. I, I think I don't know enough about why that is. I do know that there's been some speculation that she probably had, she was one of a kind. So even before the camp, she was running a three-ring circus. She was the first girl elected to student uh, council in her high school. Mm-hmm. You know, again, this is this is uh, you know this is an earlier time <laughs> in U.S. history, right, where sure, was, yeah. where minorities weren't always elected, right? Right. Um, and so people talk about that she may have just been one of these manic people who just had so much energy. Yeah, she needed to channel it in various ways Mm -hmm. so fortunately um if she had mania or if she had you know trauma induced uh, uh, vocational uh, path to to follow it absolutely became her witness Mm -hmm. right because um so many people have been touched um by the, the fruit of her witness and you know so there are and there are ta- there are in some cases tangible results, as in there are people who she advocated for and they were released from prison mm-hmm. or she was part of the Regis movement um, that eventually won Japanese Americans reparations and an official apology. Right. In some cases, there are tangible results. Mm-hmm. In other cases, the, the tangible results are um, maybe not the stuff that's uh, that always makes it in the history books. It's the letters that she would stay up writing to people, right, to comfort them in prison. Mm-hmm. And she would send, send five, ten, twenty dollars to them just so they could buy something at the the commissary, right, mm-hmm. just to um, ease some of their suffering, right. It's, or she would visit people, right, who might be serving lifelong sentences. So this is an incredible witness, and it it's been um, Having sat with her story for a while, um, it's it, it's definitely one of those. Wow, Grace, what have you done lately? Incredible amount of work she's done. Yeah, you know, for what she's called the movement over her entire lifetime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm really curious about her own family life. Um, you know, you write yeah. sort of as you know this 
this brief, almost an aside, you know, that they would house people in their home for weeks or months at a time. Her six kids had to yeah. double up or sleep on the floor. Sometimes they put a mattress in the bathtub, you know, this, and that uh, their right, house was referred right. to as Grand Central Station, right? <laughs> These people are exactly. coming and going all the time. Right. I'm, I'm curious about what that, so, well, just sort of what it's like to live with that. Do you know if her children have talked about that experience or what that was like? Do, is yes. It, Yes. Yes, that's right. So she, her biographer, and she herself acknowledges that the costs were especially acute for the three younger ones. Hmm. So the older ones ended up being activists of their own. Um, but the younger ones, just, you know, the timing of her activism, like, so it's it, one year in solidarity to um, church bombing, she said, we're not doing Christmas this year. Mm. You know, the money I would normally have spent on Christmas presents for the kids, I'm, we're going to donate, you know, to these causes. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's those mini sacrifices like that where later on she realizes it did take a toll. Mm. And the, the, the three younger kids, when they come of age, you know, there's, there's a feeling that they kind of left New York and mm -hmm. wanted to go far away, right? Yeah. Because they they wanted um, uh, a little bit more privacy and autonomy. There's there's a, a a case where one of her sons tells her that she got that he got in a, a altercation, a physical altercation, with an African American boy, and he feels like. Yuri took the side of the African-American mm. because, you know, all, all sorts of political reasons, as opposed to her own son. Mm -hmm. um, her biographer also talks about there was, in some cases, a strain on her marriage mm. um, with Bill. Mm -hmm. Because, as you said, you know, if her, if her house is Grand Central Station, the kids would come home and they never knew, like, do I have my own bed to sleep in right, tonight? Right. You know, do I have to double up? Am I going to be sent to my neighbor's house because some random kid or some college student or artist or movement activist needs a place to stay? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, um, absolutely. There were costs. And that itself is um, something I've been thinking about, especially a couple of years ago when I first started, uh, the, the thought is this. There are times where I, I wonder, to the extent that I am worried about those personal costs, am I holding her to a higher standard because she was a mother versus a father, mm -hmm. right? We, we assume that male activists you know, of course, you know, their activism comes at a cost to their family life. Sure. So mm -hmm. I, I, I've wrestled with that, right? To what extent is the emphasis on the personal cost gendered? Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great question. Yeah. And I think this, you know, this theme shows up in other places in the book, but particularly in the chapter on Howard Kester. And so it's interesting because there mm -hmm. it is a father, but there's, you know, in his case, it's really long absences from home. And there, you know, his, mm -hmm. his wife and his child really kind of suffer in his absence. And he has yes. to sort of, yes. you know, he's pulled between these needs and, and he wrestles with that too. So it's, yeah, it's really interesting. I think, 
Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the two, the conversation between the two is really interesting and whether it's, I'm sure there are still gendered elements of it. I mean, he was gone. He wasn't, he wasn't even there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Right, that's right. fascinating. Or Jerry would just, would just take her kids with her to rally. She would take them yeah. to weekly movement meetings. They would just, I mean, there was no babysitter. She would just take them. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So they were just a part of it. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. Well, and I think the split too is interesting that the older kids grew up and kind of did similar work and that the younger mm-hmm. kids felt that yes. more. I mean, just very practically, developmentally and all that, that makes sense. But it, it, yes. it's kind of a, I don't know, sort of a helpful example of how how different ways that children can receive that kind of uh, an influence and example, you know? Sure. Yeah. Oh, that's sure. really neat. Yeah. So you've, you've sort of... Um, and telling these different stories about Yuri, you're, t- you're touching on her personality all the time. But could you talk to a little bit about just sort of her her personality or what, what kind of a character was she to be around? What did, what did people experience when they were interacting with her? Mm-hmm. So um, what comes out, although they don't use the term, but they, they, they talk about her being a code switcher. Mm. So she knew what to say when to different groups of people. So that comes out very strongly. Um, so for instance, um, so privately, she believed that reparations for African Americans were a more urgent and pressing matter than reparations for Japanese Americans. Hmm. And yet she didn't share those views with Japanese Americans, mm-hmm. right? Less people weaponize her words and use it against the movement, wow. right? So that that you know would be one example of her kind of code switching, knowing when to say what, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, secondly, everyone talks or talks about her as being the internet in those days, meaning somehow she could have people's addresses and phone numbers memorized. And so if people, you know, were locked up and they had one call to make, they would call Yuri Hmm. and Yuri would then mobilize the team, so to speak, right, to arrange care and, you know, legal defense or whatever, Mm -hmm. that she just knew everyone's story. She she she's the one who wrote newsletters and movement periodicals and even Christmas cards. Right. Mm -hmm. Um chronicling everyone's story. So she just she just had her hand again not just with Japanese Japanese Americans with redress but African Americans and Puerto Ricans. Mm-hmm. So it was just in that sense she was really remarkable. Yeah, that's great. So how do you think that Yuri Kochiyama is a witness that we need now? Well, I think the need to show cross racial solidarity mm. uh, remains that, that um, you know, I think it, it's a, almost a truism to say we've become more polarized mm-hmm. and divided, right, in recent years. And so that, for me, is a tremendous uh, witness. I think for Asian Americans, especially 
there is a temptation to to revel in white adjacency. Mm. And there is a sense in which Yuri Kochiyama purposely chose downward social mobility, Hmm. right? So she was raised in this custom-built house pre-war, right? Her dad was a small business owner. So they were, you know, they were comfortable. Mm -hmm. And she was this, you know, very popular, celebrated person. But she purposely chose to align herself with the marginalized, right, in this country and in others. Mm -hmm. And I think that is an incredible incredible um, especially for Asian Americans but really for all Christians you know in this country Christians as you know still have the dominant political power right and to choose to forsake that right mm-hmm. um, is 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 really something yeah that's that's great it's really powerful how do you think you have been changed by spending so much time with Yuri over the last couple of years. Yeah, so um, I have thought through what I can and can't do, or, or more, more correctly, what I will and won't do, mm-hmm. right? So um, I don't have a marriage where I can just, like, house 20 people, <laughs> But I have been, I've been encouraged to, um, you know, because I think prior to working on her, I thought of my career as kind of separate from my children. Like when I'm with my kids, I feed them, Mm -hmm. I talk with them, I drive them to their various activities. And when I'm doing my work, I'm writing, I'm teaching, you know what I mean? Like it's a separate thing. Sure, yeah. But with her, her children are seamlessly interwoven Hmm. in her movement activities and as we've discussed um that has come with some cost right Mm -hmm. but in sitting with her I've thought more and more about how I can integrate both sides of my life better Mm -hmm. Uh, it'll probably not look like the Yuri Kochiyama model right right um but you know since the election of Trump I've taken um my kids some protests Mm -hmm. Um, and and prior to that I probably would not have right so it's not just uh the the sitting with Yuri but it's also the recent turn of events politically sure yeah yeah and and I I know that you've also um this has had an impact in your academic work is that right do you want to talk about that a little bit yeah thanks so the, the case of reparations for Japanese Americans is probably the one of the best known cases of reparations in the United States mm-hmm. and probably the only known case of reparations for Asian Americans. Um, but uh, I've been I've been wanting to work on assembling a series of case studies of reparations involving Asian Americans, not just Japanese Americans. Um, so there's a Chinese American case where the, the Senate and the House apologize for exclusion era policies. Hmm. There's a Filipino American World War II veterans equity movement 
given broken promises, you know, uh, during World War II, mm-hmm. you know, so some uh, quarter million Filipinos fought under the U.S. flag in the Pacific Theater, but then, and were promised certain benefits and then were denied them. Oh, well. There's the Japanese American case, and then there's this, um, also this case in 1993 where the United Church of Christ formally apologized to Native Hawaiians for their complicity, right, in the illegal overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii in the 19th century. And what's really interesting is that the Asian American churches in the Hawaii conference of the UCC initiated their own apology and reparations to Native Hawaiians. Wow. um, here's my assembling three cases where Asian Americans were the victims of a historical injustice, and the Hawaii cases, one where Asian Americans were not the victims, but they were the perpetrators, right? They were yeah. complicit, right, in in the suffering of another people. Mm-hmm. The work on reparations in in this chapter has led me to try to expand all sorts of reparations cases. So I'm in the process of trying to construct an Asian American theology of reparations. Uh, Because basically I'm trying to say Asian Americans have something to say on the matter that can be context sensitive for our purposes, but also in the service of common good. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, it's been really, really fun to talk to you, Grace. Thank you for making the time to do this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Can I Get a Witness? The podcast is a production of the Project on Lived Theology at the University of Virginia, a research initiative whose mission is to study the social consequences of theological ideas for the sake of a more just and compassionate world. To learn more about lived theology, visit livedtheology.org or find us on social media. This podcast is produced, edited, and engineered by Jessica Seibert, and written, edited, and hosted by me, Shay Tuttle. Original music is by Drew Wilson. Special thanks to project director Charles Marsh. The book, Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice is edited by Charles Marsh, Shay Tuttle, and Daniel P. Rhodes. It's published by Urban's Publishing Company and is available now. Thank you for listening to Can I Get a Witness, the podcast.